0: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Zero Net 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney, and with me is Joel Stronberg. Hello, Joel.
1: Hello, Jennifer.
0: Hi, so we're taking a moment, uh, you know, a pause to consider what is more like the greater picture following the passing of Justice Ginsburg, which has been tragic for many, but also turned immediately into a, a political fervor And people are getting pretty worked up about it, so it seemed like it's a good time to stop and talk about it. You actually uh, wrote an article that provides some insights on this, and I, I wanted to talk to you a bit about it here. But first, I thought it would be valuable for our listeners for you to talk a little bit about your background and specifically what experiences you've had to help you understand the U.S. justice system so well.
1: All right, um, I can do that. Uh, you know, I, I started life as a legal services attorney um, in Ohio, actually, mm-hmm. and um, most of my the issues that I dealt with were uh, those to low income people, uh, education and welfare and what have you. Um, but it actually, I was privileged to be one to work in one of the three offices that that was allowed to lobby. So that what happen is that as legal services attorneys, we would get a law knocked down, but we could never actually work to, to fill in the void, so to speak. And um, our program was one that allowed us to do that. And so I got a real taste for uh, not only writing legislation, but also for lobbying it through. Um, and that's basically the, those are basically my skills. I, I find that although I'm, I'm classically trained as an attorney um, and mm-hmm. I actually have a master's degree in sociology, um, Working the legal side in courtrooms and stuff is not something that ever kind of floated my boat, if you will. And mm-hmm. and one of the reasons was because um, to write legally for a court, everything has to be footnoted. And um, I really found it kind of constraining. So what happened from there was that um, I actually... Uh, then went on to be a research scientist in white-collar crime uh, for a couple of years and um, came back to Washington uh, and was the first attorney outside the legal offices in the agency that, that uh, preceded the Department of Energy. Um, I worked in the environmental uh, safety and health section and I was a special um, assistant to the assistant secretary at the time. Um, I worked as part of the transition Uh, forces that that created the Department of Energy Um, and after that I kind of fell into the Renewable Energy Area um, and worked on uh, laws that created NREL um, and at the time four regional centers. I've spent um, several uh, tours, so to speak, as a special counsel. Um, at the Department of Energy, at the um, assistant secretarial and undersecretarial level. Um, Interestingly enough, both of those things were in Republican administrations. Um, They found that I had standing to be able to kind of cross the aisle, um, and it was a role that I really enjoyed playing. Um, Lately, I mean, for basically I've been in this field in climate and environment and uh, solar energy, uh, clean alternative energies, uh, for about forty years, um, and one of the things that, that the the thing that I did as a legal services attorney as far as you know writing new legislation and pushing it through is kind of what I do now i mean mm-hmm. it's it's finding ways to be able to get attention done in, in a in a broader sweep I mean legal cases are they kind of uh, define this the the smaller point um, and so here I am today and I'm I have to admit I'm even more excited than I was when I first started um, I can't say that I actually ever believed some of my own hype as far as what the what the future <laughs> held if if the you know if Congress would support um, alternative energy and it's just it's it succeeded way out of any proportion of anything that I had ever thought um, and I've always been pleased that I could play a part in that
0: mm-hmm well, you know, I spend a lot of time in my career coaching people to to write, and you and I have worked a lot uh, in that respect. And you've done a lot of writing, and I... you know, one one thing that I tell people is that every single person has a unique experience that they bring to the writing process, and so you know, what that's what I see come in your writing is a lot of that experience you've had, you know, really defines your vision for, you know, where we are right now. So, you know, this particular juncture where we're looking at a shift in the Supreme Court, I think, and you know, your vision on how that's gonna happen is valuable. So, you know, I'm curious about, you know, your your perspective on you know, what it what it is that we're concerned about as a society when it comes to the balance of the political leanings of the justices which is you know a reality that we have to face they they do lean politically one way or the other.
1: Uh, they do and actually before I answer that question um, I just want to say that uh, you've actually taught me a lot um, and to, to, to value my perspectives and I, I appreciate mm-hmm. it I would not. Mm-hmm. Be nearly as prolific a writer um, <laughs> had you not been my editor at Renewable <laughs> Energy World.
0: <laughs> so, that's right.
1: <laughs> so you only have yourself to blame for That's, any of that's right, this. I do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: you know what's happening now is uh, this. Uh, I don't think this year can become any odder than than oh. than it has. Although I said that a few weeks ago, and right. and, <laughs> and, and here we here are we today. Are. <laughs> um, um, and you know, and Ginsburg. Uh, uh, there's no comparing Ginsburg to anything. I mean, she really was, she was a force. Um, and what's happening now is that, you know, the I've, I've written a number of times that the most lasting impression that Trump will have on the environment um, are his judicial appointments. I mean, long after he's a footnote in history, mm-hmm. um, the decisions that will come out of a very... M- Conservative court, not only at the Supreme Court level, but at the the lower um, district and appellate levels. I mean, before this is all over, Trump will have uh, appointed one of every four federal justices currently sitting on the bench, wow. um, or four judges. Uh, yeah. He will have appointed one third of the U.S. Supreme Court, so that mm-hmm. there'll be six justices very conservative mostly conservative mm-hmm. um, and three judges liberal and what's going to happen in this case is that um, there'll be the majority in mo- in many of these cases will now be taking a much narrower view as to what a statute says and what the Constitution um, what the framers of the Constitution meant the last three appointments that that the two appointments, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and now the uh, the third one with Kony Barrett, um, are all basically disciples of Antony and Scalia, um, and Scalia is what they would is what you would call both a textualist and an originalist. Now, a textualist is pretty much what that means. They're going to look at, at at a statute. And if it doesn't, they're gonna use the plain meaning of that statute. They're not gonna look outside of the statute. They're not gonna look at, at history, legislative history, or um, what, the, what the, the writers of the law had meant. Um, they're gonna look at that, at the five words, and if those five words mean this, then that's what they mean. Um, I, I, sometimes I like to describe this as, the difference between a textualist and a more liberal jurist is, um, a textualist is going to look at a, a duck um, and say, "Well, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, I don't know that it's a duck because I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to make that judgment." Whereas mm-hmm. somebody like Ginsburg would say, "Well, I'm going to take its duckness into mind." And so, what makes sense? Given you know circumstances today, and the and the and the, the particulars of the case. Now, what's uh, many of the decisions that we've had in the environmental area, um, not the least of which was EPA versus Massachusetts versus EPA, which basically established EPA's right um, and obligation under if it made a finding that that it was dangerous uh, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a five to four decision. Uh, and the decision, the, the dissenters uh, actually followed Scalia in this case. Um, and what will happen now is that, that there'll be six justices following Scalia and three taking the more liberal view. Coney um, Barrett's uh, writings and lectures. Don't really go into the environmental area, um, but they do talk about um, strict construction of uh, regulations. Also, as an originalist, um, jurists that that follow this kind of Scalia scheme of uh, originalist interpretation, they look at the Constitution and they don't read anything into it. I mean, they they look at again at the literal words that are that um, are written on. On the page, and um, Scalia, for example, has wrote a phrase that I've used often in writing. That um, it's that the Constitution that he interprets uh, and applies is not living but dead, um, or as he preferred to call it, enduring. Um, And the conclusion from that is that the courts don't have the authority to read much beyond it. So that. Um, You apply that to the Roe v. Wade, for example, um, and the decision comes out differently. The -hmm. the same thing comes out in Massachusetts versus EPA. Um, Well, you know, what has created stability in the courts um, have has been a concept called stare decisis, uh, which basically says that justices have to look at what went before, and you don't make a radical departure from that unless the circumstance is so unusual and so harmful that a sudden right turn is, is in keeping. Um, well, what's happened over the last four years with Trump is that he's lost a lot of the cases. He's, there've been, he's, he's attempted to roll back. 100 regulations, a little over actually 100 Mm -hmm. regulations, and he's lost, um, he has lost, the administration has lost in court about 80% of the time that they've been taken to court. Mm -hmm. But what people have to understand is that uh, he's lost not because the courts are saying he doesn't have the authority uh, to do what he's done, in this case deregulating or rolling back all these uh, regulations. He's just done it badly. I mean, he, he, you know, he says that he's not above the law, but that's exactly what the courts have been telling him—that he's not above the law. And if you want to do this, then you have to follow things like the Administrative Procedures Act. So, what's going to happen if if Trump wins a second term? Then what's going to happen is that a lot of these cases are going to go back to a court, and they're going to be a much more conservative court than heard these cases originally. And the pre- previous decisions have made the Trump administration smarter in the sense that, well, they're not going to rush it quite like they have before. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, even, I mean, you know, the, the, average, the average age now on the, on the Supreme Court is significantly younger. Cody Barrett is only 48. Um, mm-hmm. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh um, are in their mid-50s. So that, you know, we're, we're looking at RGB and she was, what, 88? Right. Um, and so we're, we're talking about, you know, over a quarter century um, of these kinds of conservative things. And it, yeah. it does change the balance. From my perspective, kind of on a philosophical side, you know, the courts, we have three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. And the judicial has traditionally been the least political of these. Well, Trump has made this the most political at the moment. Um, and it's unfortunate for the for the nation that we now have doubt about our courts as to whether or not we're going to get a neutral reading and under any circumstance. I mean, he says that he's only going to feel comfortable um, with the election should she be confirmed because he 's expecting the election to be decided by the supreme court i mean this mm-hmm. is this is such an obvious attempt to politicize the court and it 's also going to engender on the on the Democrats should they win the Senate and the presidency that they 're going to try to pack the court the way Franklin Delano Roosevelt did by expanding the number of justices um, and where does it stop i mean and mm-hmm. this this is my problem is that where does politicalization, where does hyperpartisanship, stop? If we keep doing it this way, because government is becoming dysfunctional, um, and so I think that this is this is the unfortunate side of it. Had had Trump and the Republicans in the Senate waited until at least after the election, then there wouldn't be quite this furor, um, you know, against what's going on. It 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 diminishes the the stature of the court. Um, and its ability, I think to be recognized there in a democracy where we accept decisions that may be against something that we think because we believe the system is fair. you lose the fairness concept and you've lost democracy and
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I think it's just as deep as all that yeah,
0: okay, well, let me just ask you this you know when it we we talk about the Court being politicized, but you know, do the justices always stick to you know their um, their line, or are there instances when they're they're bending, and we may not have expected it? Oh,
1: actually, that's that's a really good question. It's, it's somewhat interesting too, because there's there's something about putting on 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 the robes of a of a Supreme Court justice that that has in fact changed people's views or change judges' views of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one I think that, that's the most obvious is that um, uh, Justice Black, uh, was appointed during the Roosevelt years, um, was actually a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, mm-hmm. And once he got on the federal bench, I mean, he became one of the most liberal voices for um, uh, uh, racial justice mm-hmm. um, of, of any justice in history. Um, we've also seen that, uh, we've seen even in this last year or two that um, that Justice Roberts, for example, Chief Justice Roberts, um, has taken a stance on a number of cases that have really disappointed the conservatives, um, believing that, you know, he, he was violating their code of whatever. Um, and that's going to happen more in the future. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts is very aware of the importance of, the, of how people view the Supreme Court and, and will not necessarily act in what he would, the way he would act if he were just another justice um, as compared to the Chief Justice. That also plays out too in what cases they take. And, and actually, Gorsuch um, also irritated the conservatives um, this year because in his reading, in a literalness of, of uh, statute on um, gay rights, he read it in a way that um, that his literal re- reading of it meant that he was actually taking a liberal stance on it. And mm. so it's not always true. Um, I think the most consistent justice that has been in modern times anyway, who's pretty much stuck to his conservative ways, is actually uh, Justice Thomas. Um, mm. And uh, we don't know how, how, how um she's going to, how Cody Barrett is going to, is going to rule on things. And one of the problems that is going to be asked about during her confirmation hearings is she's a very devout Catholic, is whether or not she could, she can view the Roe v. Wade decision without looking at her religiosity. And, you know, I think that people have to be careful about judging any of these justices um, until we see more of what happens, because it's not always the case that, how they come into the court is the way they, they end up ruling. And um, my belief is that, that Kavanaugh um, and Roberts are actually the ones that may end up being the saviors in a, in a minor sense um, of, of the environment in the way they interpret the environmental rules. And, uh, and in Kavanaugh's case, and actually in Roberts' case as well, they both believe that climate change is happening. Um, they just don't. Believe that the laws are written in a certain way that they can act that way, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's where this all ends up ultimately. Is we have to look now at the legislatures and the chief executives, whether at the state or the local level or the federal level, um, for what the courts had been providing um, in this kind of anti-environmental atmosphere since the. Senate is now you know since the Senate is Republican uh majority, and with Trump in the White House, so mm-hmm. this this is i mean th- this is gonna put the onus back on the legislative and executive branches of government,
0: right, and so thinking in those terms, you know we gotta look at the environment. Uh, not the environment, as in cli- climate, right? But you know our our current uh, political environment, and say to ourselves, all right, where where do we see progress that's going to help us when we are looking at a system, a justice system that isn't going to serve us in the ways maybe it has in the past?
1: Well, I mean, I think that we look at. The legislature in your state, in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, which uh, actually took a big bold step um, just this last week, that uh, they they completed the override of the governor's veto, um, and they've they've written into um, a, a law that that sets out uh, milestones and targets for greenhouse gas uh, uh, reductions, and have given citizens the right to be able to hold the government uh, to their established targets. Um, and I think that that's also something that that will have to happen if, you know, th- this is one of those cases where to really make progress in, in the next four years, at least at the federal level, Congress and the White House have to go democratic because uh, because if it's split government, we're not gonna get any laws through. And mm-hmm. so the, the pressure is gonna fall um, even greater at, at the state and local level. Um, and so what you get is state and local governments working in concert with industry to actually try to achieve the, the goals that, that are implied by the Paris Agreement. Um, mm-hmm. And so this, you know, the next few weeks are gonna be profoundly important um, for climate-related policies and legislation.
0: Mm, interesting. All right, well, we'll we'll wrap it up there, but just say that and we are going to talk some more about what's going on here in Vermont in our next short podcast. And so that will come up. But um, I just want to thank you so much for taking uh, a pause here with us and, and sharing those insights, because I think they're really important for people as they try to understand what's going on.
1: Uh, always my pleasure.
0: great. Okay. okay. So thank you also to our listeners for joining us today. And you can tweet questions and comments to hashtag ZeroNet50. And have a great day.